Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your other host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for issue 14 of our Comics Bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as well as 1994's The Crow. This is our last episode before the finale. This is the other semifinal. Mm-hmm. The demi-semifinal? No, that's not how that works. You know what? It's trying to say visibility when we're recording this. Everything is Demi now. The Crow is Demi. April Neal is Demi. The Shredder is Demi. That would explain the jumpsuit. Hmm. <laughs> Last week, it was interesting that we were working with two films that were attempting to be prestige This week, we are dealing with two films who very much recognize their comic book roots and are very comfortable with that. Just diving headlong into the pulp. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting that both these films, the comics they come from, are much darker than the films themselves are. Significantly. And they've both been lightened quite a bit to appeal to a wider audience. It makes a lot more sense in the Turtles case, considering they had a Saturday morning cartoon show that was also a big draw for the popularity, and this film was kind of trying to split the difference. Mm-hmm. The Crow could have just gone whole hog and been as dark and edgy as the comic was. I don't want to see the Crow Saturday morning cartoon. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that I, that I feel like I would say, oh man, I'd love to see that. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is a monkey's paw I'm holding. <laughs> Actually, before we get into anything, did we talk about that April O'Neil scene last time? Oh, um, that one that we were like, hmm, I think we keep trying to not talk about it. But we have to put a content warning in anyway because of the crow. Oh, yeah. It makes the most sense to dig into that this week. Uh, so, as per usual, this is where the trigger warning lives. If you don't want to do the thing, that's that's cool. We're going to try to not be too explicit with stuff, but as always, sexual assault triggers. With that unfortunateness out of the way, let's go ahead and start digging into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. All right. Do we want to just start with that scene and get it out of the way? Yeah. If you don't want to listen to that bit in particular, just skip ahead by the next two minutes. So this scene is one of the few things that I would completely strip out of this film, and I feel like it would improve it immensely. There's a scene between April and Casey in the kitchen. It opens with... Something that's actually kind of funny, Casey Jones is using one of Leo's katanas to, like, chop vegetables. Yeah, it's incredibly on brand. And April walks in, she's, like, rubbing her shoulder, it's in pain, and he's just like, let me handle that for you. And he just pushes her into the chair, even against her protest? Yeah, and, like, she protests, and he grabs her and pushes her down and rubs her shoulders. It's incredibly uncomfortable... And then we get the scene of April kind of just going with it afterwards. And then Mikey comes in and makes a turtle wax joke. Funny Mikey! And all throughout the farmhouse, Casey and April have been kind of at each other's throats. And Casey is being this lunk and just not getting, being cognizant of other people's feelings. And April is just really put off by all the machismo that's leaking out of him. This is like a culmination of all that, and I don't really think it adds anything. I mean, I guess it's part of their budding relationship, but we have enough scenes that kind of lead up into that, and also I don't really care about their relationship, so we really don't have a need for it. And you could probably put basically any other thing in that was more consenty, and it would work just as well to show them growing together. Yeah. 
Like maybe even a scene where she gives him a back rub or whatever, and he's at first like, "No, I, I'm a strong man." And she's like, "Like, no, you're incredibly tense. Let me help you with this." And he's like, "Oh, this actually feels kind of nice." And that could be a you know thing of him of her like working through his outer shell, which could be nice. Hmm. All right, that's all out of the way. Where do we want to go from here? I want to talk about how Splinter should have died. Ooh, <laughs> I thought we were gonna lighten the mood. Okay. <laughs> well, we could lighten the mood, but he doesn't light. And the thing I'm talking about is probably part of it. Don't get me wrong. I love Splinter. I love what you referred to as Uncle Iroh's fursona. That exists now. Thanks. How could a member of my own family say something so horrible? Um, (laughs) And he's a great character, good mentor, has a lot of interesting things to say. Some things that I'll quibble about later on, but we'll get to that later. But I think if you kill off Splinter at some points... And I'm not sure how this would work with the timeline. He needs to impart lessons to Danny, and that doesn't happen until Ashley's Turtles are back, so he'd have to reorganize some scenes. But if he, in fact, died off at some point, and the Turtles were not able to save him, that would mean they'd have to go on to who defeat Shredder, which would mean that it's not like them just sort of dicking around on a rooftop for five minutes and, and achieving nothing. It would give some payoff to the whole, like, one day I will be gone, and you will have to learn how to live without me scene. And it could have also led to a thing where they have an initial bad reaction to him dying, but then they manage to regroup from that, and that would have been more satisfying and had more of an arc to them being independent. Teenagehood is a process of uncoupling from your parent, and I think that them being totally independent as characters would have been a more satisfying arc as the Teenage Mutant Turtles. It's not that I want him to die as a character, it's more that I think I want him to die as a narrative device. I mean, I think that's for the most part why they went with the kidnapping, because it accomplishes a lot of that without having to kill off this kindly old rat man. Yeah, but it also means that they never actually learn to live without him. Like, even when Shredder says, It had a name. And Leo charges him, it shows that he's clearly not ready to live without him because he's not making a sensible choice there. Yeah, but... At the beginning of the film, he specifically mentioned that they weren't quite ready for that to be the case. And also, they're 15. What 15-year-old is ready to be parentless? Uh, Don Summers. <laughs> okay, Wait, listen, I'm not saying that this would be like, they're ready or anything, but I think them becoming ready might have been a more coherent arc for the turtles who don't really have that much of an arc as a group. The characters themselves, sure, but I feel like the turtles as a whole don't have that much of an arc that I understand. The turtle is as this cohesive whole, no, but I would argue that each of them individually has their own arc of coming to terms with Splinter and kind of realizing themselves outside of being ninjas and realizing themselves as being persons. Mm, Yeah. And it does eventually lead to the end bit where they're all, you know, shouting catchphrases like, Gnarly! Radical! Yeah! Totally turtle, dude! And then Splinter comes in with like, I have always liked Kawabunga. And it's a good scene. It's interesting to me that Splinter has the end line, so it's kind of like, here, Splinter had an arc too. That's really good. I like that it's not just about them growing to be more like Splinter, it's the turtles and Splinter growing and learning from each other. Yeah. That's very healthy. Yeah. I could see the death of Splinter as a really good story arc for a sequel that never happened to transpire, not even in the 2007 animated film that is a pseudo-sequel to the live-action trilogy, Mm. which is weird because it makes lots of sense there, but I'm getting way off topic. Yeah. And admittedly, I'm also kind of, it worked pretty well in the Star Wars, and so I'm, I'm, that's kind of where I'm coming from, I guess, that like, this could be more like Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, we- Which is what I think of most things. This, Battlestar Galactica, Gilmore Girls, Zack and Mira make a porno. I do want to focus on the 
kidnapping of Splinter. Mm, sure. Because in my opinion, one of the best scenes in the film is the turtles coming back from April's and realizing that Splinter has been kidnapped. Mm, yeah. I think it does a great job of differentiating all of the turtles and their personalities based off of their reactions to what's going on. And I think the scene is also very well framed, very well shot, and does a really good job of communicating a lot of that personality and internal thought processes visually. So I'm actually going to break this down turtle by turtle. I spent a lot of time with this barely a minute of film going through it step by step, following each of the turtles through this whole process. So we're going to start with Leo because he is the one in front. And so he's the first to see the smashed door. He is also the one that tells everyone to hold it. He unsheaths his katanas and kicks open the door ready for a fight. He steps in, he surveys what's going on before the camera even does. And then we see him drop his katanas and we hear them fall to the floor. The other turtles come in, there's some other reactions, and then at one point he exclaims Splinter in this almost whisper. Splinter. And it's some of the only dialogue in the scene. In fact, for all of the kidnap scene, Leo's the one who gets the most dialogue. And then once the location of the scene moves to April's door, Leo is the only one who is able to communicate what's actually wrong. Splinter. And I love that one <clears throat> shot we get of them because they've somehow managed to make these like big hulking turtle boys look like small and meek and weak based on these actors' body language and just a bit of well, the way their heads are tilted. It's really impressive. Yeah. Like they get so much range yeah. out of these static bodies. Yeah. Then second turtle into the room is Donatello. Now, whereas Leo is the most communicative and that kind of sets him up as he is the most understanding of everyone else's feelings. Donatello is kind of the most introspective. He is probably the one who understands their personal feelings the most. He's kind of awkward and is a little bit different than all of the others, but he's real comfortable with that. Bossa Nova? Chevy Nova? But we see him, he comes in second, also with his bow staff drawn. He gets pushed aside by Raph so that Raph can get to the front. We see him kind of wobble. He's unsteady with what's going on. The camera then pans and shows their home completely in disarray. And then after that, he drops his staff and then drops to his knees. He's the only turtle that does that. Then at April's front door... Donnie is visibly and audibly sobbing, and he's the only one who can't lift their heads to look at April when she answers the door. So Donnie is probably taking this the hardest out of all of them. Mm -hmm. Mikey is the third to enter. He's interesting because a lot of the rest of the film sets him up as the youngest for a variety of reasons. He has this very round face compared to the rest of the turtles. He has more visible freckles. He sleeps with a stuffed animal. He's the baby spice. He's the one who is distracting himself from Splinter being gone by watching cartoons in April's apartment. After Leo says Splinter and they've kind of realized what's happened, he's specifically looking around at everyone else trying to figure out what to do because he's completely lost. He's not ready to deal with this. Earlier in the film, when Donatello brought up, Hey Mikey, did you ever think about what Splinter said tonight? I mean about what it would be like. You know, not having him. 
And Mikey just completely ignores the question. He's much more concerned with the pizza delivery guy. Mm -hmm. I think that might be why, even though Mikey's the baby, he's a a little bit, maybe not quite as visibly affected. I don't think he's quite at the level where he can process the idea of someone being gone. Yeah. Whereas Donatello is. Yeah. Even at April's door, he's the one who looks up at April the most. He's in the forefront. It's like, we don't know what to do. Help. Mm -hmm. All just through his body language. Then we have Raph. Raph is the last to enter, and he specifically pushes Don and Leo away so he can move to the front and see what's going on for himself. After that happens, most of the scene shifts to focus on Raphael. I think in general, he gets a lot more of the focus for where he is emotionally and psychologically throughout the film, which honestly is good. He is kind of the most tormented and he has the most baggage to unpack. And I think he has the most kind of obvious arc to do in a big ensemble thing. Yeah. But as the camera shifts to Raph, it starts to sway a lot more than it was. And it starts to circle around him. And we see he's got his size, they're raised, and we see this tension throughout his whole body. The actor and the puppetry does a really good job of showing that. And then eventually that tension turns to shaking and Raph raises his size and just starts to scream. It's really interesting Raph's reaction in the sewer compared to what's going on with Raph at April's door. Because rather than him pushing the front, he's in the back. He's kind of sequestered himself back there. I think in part because he realizes that his emotions can't really do anything to help right here. He is angry and he's upset and he just wants to punch stuff to fix it. Mm-hmm. We can see that later between his argument with Leo in April's apartment. And I think him standing in the back is also maybe he has a little bit of shame too because like Raph is kind of the loner one, but this is a thing that he has no ability to solve on his own. Like, he he needs other people, so he has to confront that. He also has to confront probably feeling useless, which is a really shitty thing to feel when you're dealing with grief. Yeah. And so there's probably a lot of, like, just internalized stress all collapsing on him. Yeah. And I think in that, like, he realizes that I'm not good at what we need right now. I'm going to let others take the lead. And that's one of the few times where he's completely willing to just go along with what the others want every other time he butts heads with leo even when it's coming to them going out to camp at the fire he's like leo if you drag this out here for nothing that whole 56 ish seconds of film does so much to communicate these four individual turtles and how they feel about this massive trauma that they've just undergone and how they're reacting to it and just what their internal states are. It's so well done. And so much of it is done through actions to the dialogue, through body language, and through camera movement because they realize that talking things out isn't going to be the most effective way to do this. So the filmmakers had a really good sense of what their limitations were and how to work around them, which is a really useful skill to have when you're making a thing like this. Yeah. The only audible dialogue in the scene is hold it, splinter, Raph scream, and then splinter again. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then April asking what they're doing there. Yeah. And the the dialogue is specifically April saying, you know, you know, what are you doing here? And then just splinter, which is not at all an answer. It's communicating, this is what I'm sad about. And <laughs> it, it doesn't, you know, relate any other ideas, which is really good because, you know, we don't need a scene of a character saying splinter's in trouble. We need to understand that this character has not been able to process this all the way here. We've seen that being a relatively long walk. Yeah. And we get more bits and pieces of this throughout the film, the way Leo reacts to 
Raph and him being comatose, specifically after they fought about how to get Splinter back. He feels guilty for letting Raph go off on his own and not being able to be the leader that he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. There's also this one very short exchange between April and Donatello as they're going down to the antique store. Uh, April's talking about how it used to be her father's and she's like, I don't know, I guess it's kind of dumb to lose money on a business just because you miss your father. And Donatello just comments back, No, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't noticed that until this time either. It's just such a, such a good little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I like that that scene tells us a lot about what's happening with this antique store and why it's here and why April has this particular set piece set up for later fights, but not really doing anything else with it without having to sit us down and have a whole scene where they talk about it. Again, very economical storytelling, which is really useful. I also noticed another thing this wash through is this weird association that the film has between fire and fatherhood. Mm, yeah. Splinter lighting the candle, Splinter appearing in the fire. The burning down of the antique store that yeah. was April's father's. Yeah, and specifically with the antique store, they talk about Splinter is trying to prepare the turtles for when he is not around. And we, we get from April and Donatello's dialogue, April's father didn't really do that for her. She wasn't really prepared to lose her father. And that's one of the reasons she's holding on to the antique store and one of the reasons she's holding on to all the junk and antiques in the store. And they're also the reason why it goes up so quickly is they catch incredibly fast. And I might be reading too much into it, but it feels like if April were more willing to let some of that stuff go and be more okay with her father being gone, then she wouldn't have lost everything. I'm not sure where it goes with that, but yeah, yeah, it's there. I, don't know, I, th- I thought it was just interesting. We had this interesting association with water last episode and this interesting association with fire this one. Mm-hmm. Notably, Shredder has no association with fire. The spaces he's in are always very like coldly lit. He's very like sharp and metal and jagged. None of the warmth yeah. that a father would need. Ah, oh, that's where it is. None of the warmth that a father needs. So it kind of creates this like, sense of a false father with mm-hmm. that. Speaking of the Shredder, what does he want? <sighs> We've talked about that. He doesn't really have that good of a motivation he's mostly just accruing power and accruing stuff yeah we don't really see any masterstroke what he wants to do with the child army that he's amassed in new york city and i mean i get it army of ninjas is its own end i respect making an army of ninjas fair enough but it doesn't seem like he wants to like he's trying to like get rich and just be rich for richness's sake. Like he doesn't have luxury. Well, he has those suit and pajamas. He might have made an army of ninjas to steal things from all across New York in order to fund his amazing pajamas. I respect that. Now he's a likable character yeah. to me. While I do appreciate that the film does a lot of streamlining of Oroki Saki as a character compared to the comic, there is this one thing in the comic that I do really appreciate that it really sets up Oroku Saki and the Shredder as a crime boss. In the comic, the Turtles are sending a ninja challenge to him to reclaim his honor since he killed one of his clan members, Hamato Yoshi. And when he receives it, via a sigh thrown through the window, he's trying to extort some businessmen for protection money. It's distinctly sets him up as, this is just a crime syndicate. We don't really get that there. Like, yeah, they're stealing and all that, but Shredder isn't living a life of luxury. He's in this worn out warehouse with all these bunch of kids and he's not like living the high life or anything like that. It 
Well, we don't really know. We don't see him when he's not showgunning the teenagers of New York. He might have his own inner life and maybe he's not Bruce Wayneing or whatever, but we don't see that, so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I also just don't see it with the way the film portrays his issues with the scarring of his face. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem like someone who would be very public without like all of the shredder gear and mask and whatnot but we also don't see anyone who would be like the public face of the foot sure and i mean he might have been amassing funds and armies for a goal that he had yet to start acting on i mean i get having some resources before you even begin your evil plan I mean, fair enough that's reasonable goal mm-hmm. strategy but we don't really get into that it doesn't strictly matter it's not like the narrative requires us to know what he's doing because the turtles aren't actually trying to stop him so it doesn't strictly matter but i think it could have been a, an opportunity for more of a narrative i do a fix that could have been interesting okay. he has to change the whole scarring the face thing but that's work aroundable if he takes off the mask and he's revealed to be the police commissioner that april was having trouble with the whole time Ooh, that could be really interesting. Yeah, just creating crimes to like line his own pocket so that he amasses more and more power. I keep fix fixing things. Sorry about that. One more thing I have with with Shredder. This is sort of complaint, more of a like. Let's unpack this. He talks about how you are here because the outside world rejects you. Then he goes right into there is a new enemy, freaks of nature. Together we will punish these creatures. And it's so interesting that he's very openly and obviously hypocritical. That's not a problem to me. There are many people who are far more obviously openly hypocritical that are oligarchs. That's just how it'd be. But I kind of like that, actually. That there's this very, like, open sign that his words are false and hollow. Yeah. And that also makes sense why he's specifically going after teenagers because of that. Is because they're less likely to make that sort of connection. Mm-hmm. Just because of less life experience. Yeah. We've talked a lot about... The turtles. Let's go ahead and shift things over to the crow. So I was going to have a thing where last time we had the bridge of Daniel Craig, and I was going to say this time we could have the bridge of use of Asian representation in media that maybe could have not been there, but we're not the right people to unpack that, so we're not doing that. I'm just going to say that that is a connection both of these movies have. We're going to move on to The Crow, which we keep forgetting to mention Tony Todd is in this. Tony Todd, who plays Candyman and also the guy trying to outwit death in the Final Destination movies. I don't have a thesis for him. I just, everyone always forgets Tony Todd, who was a really great part of the slasher genre. And yeah, he plays uh, Grange, who is like top dollars number two. I do kind of want to focus in on the gang real quick. I noticed each of them kind of has this signature weapon or like signature modus operandi Mm. that then specifically is used against them when the crow is getting revenge. So for Tintin, it's knives. And he gets stabbed. In every vital organ in alphabetical order. How could you possibly tell? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> then we get Fun Boy and his gun. It's this huge thing. It's very ostentatious. Um, and I guess to like a lesser extent, drugs. Yeah. And he does get drugs stabbed to death. So I think that's more of his thing. That's what they're going with. Yeah. But I mean, he is first incapacitated by uh, shooting himself in the thigh. Then we have T-Bird, who is very into fire, perhaps even to a sexual degree. He puts out his own, like, cigarello on his own tongue. Mm -hmm. So he has, like, a daddy thing going on. (laughs) Because if that was fire, his father. (laughs) No. Different movie. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he gets blown up his car with all those explosives. And there's the whole T-Bird, very reminiscent of a phoenix. Mm Mm-hmm. The only one this doesn't apply to is Skank. Skank's preferred modus operandi is brown nosing. He eventually gets killed because he went to Top Dollar and then gets used as bait. 
Pretty much. I guess another way to put it, he's kind of a flat character and he gets thrown out a window and flattened on the pavement. I just guess they didn't know what to do with him because all the other ones like really interesting with final moments, but it's like, eh, we need some way to connect the crow to this bigger bad who is in charge of everything. Okay, we'll we'll toss in this guy and that'll be our connecting point. And unfortunately, it's Skank who talks a lot and he doesn't need to. No huge defense of the actor. I think he's actually doing a pretty good job of creating a very like believable lived in character. I just really don't like the character they've written, but he's making me believe in this character and then of course lastly we get top dollar who's killed with the pain that he inflicted on others back first time i watched this i wrote my notes i don't care about the villain but i'm coming around on top dollar ignoring the sexual assault part that is like through all these characters i'm talking about which is really shitty and sucky he's a very vibrant character and i like that and i like that he doesn't really have a lot of motivation as written into his character he's very specific about having reached his nihilistic point and wanting to go even higher and further because he wants to feel something again basically yeah he is a much more caricatured villain than the shredder is but he also has a much more understandable motivation than the shredder does mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting because i wouldn't expect that from the crow Right, although to be fair, the Shredder doesn't strictly have to be a complex, nuanced character. He's called the Shredder. (laughs) Fair enough. I think it helps a lot that Top Dollar and Eric Draven, they interact a lot, they have a lot of time to build off of each other, and also they're very opposites. Top Dollar is a nihilist who doesn't care but wants to, whereas Eric is a bleeding heart softy who cares too much and that's what got him killed. Mm -hmm. So there's two kind of like big points I want to talk about with this. Do you want... The deep one or the weird one? Let's go with the weird one. Let me tell you this, the tale of the Skull Cowboy. Oh no. So are, are you sure we're not talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles now? I'm pretty sure. I'm also pretty sure we're not talking about Ghost Rider because it's a Marvel property. We can't watch Nick Cage, which was your rule, not mine. It was a valid rule. You're not wrong. <laughs> but I'm just saying we could have watched the Ghost Rider instead of several things on this bracket. Anyway, Skull Cowboy was a character in The Crow who isn't in like the first bit, but he comes up a few times and he's the sort of psychopomp character. And he's going to be in the movie as kind of the, God, the Cogliostro analog. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Not around as much. He's basically there to show up and tell Eric the rules. Like, you have this mission. Kill these dudes. Uh, don't let the crow get hurt. It can't be hurt. So here's the contract. Pretty much. And there are some like production stills because they film a lot of these scenes he is in fact a guy who is faced a skull who wears a cowboy hat what says of his tin specifically part of this he's going to show up when eric does the whole thing where he says morphine is bad for you to darla specifically because he's going to be like hey eric you're not here to save the people of detroit you're here to do this particular vengeance if you try to save people you're going to be wandering earth forever and you don't get to see shelly again and so that was going to set up a thing at the end where when Sarah gets kidnapped, Eric was going to have to choose between saving Sarah or getting his happily ever after with Shelley in the afterlife, which is a really interesting conflict that was probably a bit too on the nose. I'm kind of glad we got it the way it was, but that was a way they could have done things. Yeah, I think there's already enough going on in that film. Adding that another layer of complexity would have made the film lesser. I think you're right. I can see a universe where it worked out, but it didn't. I don't think the film strictly suffers for not having it. Yeah. Although, I mean, I'm always here for anything called the Skull Cowboy being a thing. Like, I think part of it is that I 
really like Eric being this incredibly empathetic person. I don't want to see him get punished for that. Right. And I think that's, I don't want to say it helped that Brandon Lee died, but Brandon Lee had three days of filming left on the film and apparently a pivotal Skull Cowboy scene was part of it. And it was going to set up the whole thing where like, oh, you saved Sarah. Now you're wandering the earth forever. You have two more movies to figure that out because he was signed for a trilogy thing. Mm -hmm. But they didn't get a chance to film that scene and they weren't going to try to replace that with some other actor. So they had to cut the whole Skull Cowboy thing entirely, which the other scenes were a bit more of him walking into the apartment when he dies and because they didn't have those scenes they had to like cut around a lot of that so that's why we instead of opening with a brutal graphic scene we just have that scene being flashes and cutbacks which makes it a lot more artistic a lot more visually interesting a lot more representative of what of what trauma feels like sometimes or at least to me and it works out really well and i think it helped push the film into a more artistic place and i like that yeah, I'm really glad that they weren't able to film those scenes and had to come up with this more creative way to do it. Because I like the psychometry aspect of the film and how it all ties in with Eric and his and Shelley's trauma and how much of the film ties around vision and eyes. There's a lot of eye symbolism throughout the film. And some of just visual shorthand to let us know that Eric is seeing through the eyes of the crow. So we get like flash of a crow's eye, something seen as a crow flies, and Eric reacting to that. But there's other stuff too, isn't there? Oh yeah. One of the first examples is towards the opening of the film, we're getting these airborne shots zooming into the round window of Eric and Shelley's apartment. And there's these metal structures that are like support beams for the roof. And they're in this kind of pyramid shape. And then at the very top, we see what is almost this eye shape, kind of reminiscent of the Eye of Providence, like Illuminati sort of symbolism. We also get a ad on the side of a building that Eric is climbing up while following the crow after he's been resurrected that has a huge eye on it and it kind of looks a little bit fortune tellery. We talked about the close-ups of the crow's eyes. We also get a lot of a few close-ups of security cameras, especially when we're in Top Dollar's compound. There's even some dialogue. There's a scene between Top Dollar and Micah after they're talking about the woman that they uh sex murdered? Yeah. Um, but she mentions I love her eyes. Just a few seconds later, we cut down to the band playing at the club, and we get this shot looking down at the lead singer, and specifically close up on her eyes. And then those same eyes make comebacks later in the film. One is when there's this goblet that the one of the plucked out eyes is put into and then lit on fire by Micah, and then they like breathe in the smoke. As you do. Then one of them is thrown at Gideon, the pawn shop owner, when he's being interrogated and he freaks out. And Top Dollar comments about, All the power in the world resides in the eyes, fella. We get the crow, like the bird, not the individual, clawing out Micah's eyes towards the climax of the film. Oh, that's her ironic death. Exactly. Yeah. All of it is just pushing us to vision is power. The psychometry that Eric is granted gives him the power to be able to avenge his and Shelley's death, but it comes at a cost. He has to keep reliving that trauma. It's this double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. I'll admit that while it's definitely in there, I'm not sure what all it means or, or amounts to. It's interesting. It adds flavor, but I'm not sure if it resolves to a, a greater whole. I would argue that it doesn't really put forth anything. It's kind of like all the religious symbolism and undertones in the film. It's there mostly for flavor, but they don't really come to a concrete thesis with any of it. 
or how there is a lot of alchemy symbols just spray painted and graffitied around town but not in a way that means like we put the amalgam symbol here and this scene is about amalgamation i went through and checked which that was strenuous do you know how many different alchemy symbols there are and i'm okay with things just having stuff that's in there for texture definitely creates an ambiance and an atmosphere both like the eyes the religious symbolism Mm -hmm. it brings you into a space for this narrative and while i wish it was doing more that's only because we're in the like semi-finals now and think like i want things to be their best as opposed to being just neat yeah something that i think is really neat actually though is that i'm realizing well while this wasn't the initial intent because of the whole still cowboy thing we talked about what the film resolves into because of the way that it's edited and the story is told is that the crow wasn't actually here to avenge shelley's murder he was here to save sarah because like he kills the four dudes who did the thing they're gone he could leave at any point now and then sarah gets kidnapped and he's to go save her and before then he's got her mother onto the wagon to you know being a better mom combining that with the whole thing where he giving top dollar all of shelly's bad memories and saying i don't want it anymore it has this vibe of like revenge not being all that useful you have to actually like care for the people around you and make the city a better place and i like that a lot we talked about this before how the film was oddly optimistic and i think that's a much more optimistic take on things than the comic had and i think what makes this not just a gritty slugfest is that it brings it to a slightly more purpose having space top dollar never figures out what to do with all this power he has whereas eric draven does i kind of have something that ties into that a little bit on this watch through i noticed something the makeup that eric puts on when after becoming the crow is based off of a mask that he has in his apartment with one minor thing change the black markings on the mask have the corners of the mouth downturned creating a frown eric's makeup specifically reverses that and has them pointing up as a smile trying to make the most of tragedy Mm -hmm. or even reversing a tragedy exactly and in the like classical sense comedy isn't so much a funny story as a story with a happy ending mm-hmm. and tragedy is the opposite so yeah. he's making his story into a happy ending yeah by sheer force of will and by black makeup which we've all been there one other thing so i've talked a little bit before about how the fight scene at top dollars kind of feels hollow part of it is that it's not very well shot there's it's a little chaotic i think part of it is also just rings hollow narratively because so far all of the deaths that the crow has been involved in and all the violence has been specific it's been for this avenging of his and shelly's death here that's not the case most of these people didn't really have any involvement with that with the exception of skank and top dollar it's all just kind of indiscriminate killing that's means to an end it just doesn't feel as compelling as any of the other action scenes in the movie and it comes close to playing the whole like revenge doesn't work thing if we got just one shot of eric like looking bored with the whole thing it might have been fine but we don't although i will say that it does unintentionally play up that because skin king shoved out a window and like being the last of this quest being technically completed just happens as a part of this scene that isn't the end of that scene the way that the other three kills are Again, more of an accident than anything else. Although, a very minor thing, the cops burst in to tell Eric to freeze and he kind of scoots out of the scene, but he has this very, like, mocking quick step, and it's really hard to be mocking with a quick step, but he somehow achieves it. Brandon Lee knew what he was doing. Yeah, like, a lot of Lee's physical acting is really great. The parkour, the fight scenes. The running. I, I meant to, to bring up how, like, the running doesn't look silly, whereas humans often look silly when they run and jump, and they manage to not make it look like that. One last bit of symbolism we got in here. A lot of falling. A lot of people fall from things. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to that? There are a number of instances of 
falling. I'm not sure a good way to connect all of them together. Yeah. The turtles also fall a few times. No. Yeah. One of those like quick cut connections that we talked about, I think, in the very first episode where we talked about the crow that I missed until this time is we see the gang at the bar celebrating getting ready to cause havoc on Devil's Night again. Which I do love that scene. And then we immediately cut to the apartment, specifically the floor of the apartment, we see a cockroach, and then the bird crow flies in, snatches, and eats it. Foreshadowing. <laughs> it's a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. I think we're moving towards the, the voting time. Yeah. And uh, I honestly don't know right now. Like, I figured, I figured out as we were talking, but I'm still a little torn. Let's go ahead and move into the vote, and I will preface this with the fact that this is really close both these films are surprisingly good for their age for their subject matter i think for me teenage mutant ninja turtles edges out the crow just by a little bit i think the crow in general is a deeper film but i think teenage mutant ninja turtles is a more well-made film we talked a lot about how there was a lot of production troubles if that wasn't the case then maybe my vote might switch. But there are less overt mistakes and inconsistencies in TMNT and that just kind of edge it out. It also doesn't have nearly as big of a content warning label as The Crow needs. Yeah. I realize at least part of it is just that I have this weird fascination with The Crow, both as a movie and as a mythos that I don't fully understand. That's kind of clouding my judgments. And the really weak ending of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles does bother me a lot. But on the flip side, um, I think TMNT shows how incredibly artistic you can be with a very complicated premise. And while The Crow does the same, I think its premise was a little bit less doofy comic book nonsensey. And it had a little bit less of an uphill struggle to, to make something work. That's some of the essence of comic books. Like, yeah, we've got these doofy characters who are super powerful and would be able to like solve most people's normal everyday problems incredibly easily. But we still identify with their personal and social struggles and we get invested with these anthropomorphic turtles. Yeah. That's a really amazing feat to be able to do that it's not just doofy i mean no one's even tried to attempt it again with all of the turtle knockoff cartoons like street sharks or biker meister mars yeah part of that might just be they don't have as much brand recognition but i think part of it also is that it's incredibly hard to get us to feel for these characters because of how alien they are to our normal everyday lives and the fact that this film was able to do that speaks volumes Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the reason that we get so many adaptions that so many people have probably seen this particular film and have, have been trying to get back to that point. I'm going to give it to TMNT. I think there's probably criteria by which I would give The Crow the win. But I think because this is a bracket about evaluating adaptions of comic books, and this is, I think, a more impressive adaption, just going to let it go just a smidge ahead. I will also just come right out and say The Crow is number three for this bracket it definitely beats out cowboys and aliens god yes there is a matchup i'd like to see cowboys and aliens and the crow i'd also watch the crow versus tmnt that sounds fun so uh with that the teenage mutant Ninja turtles get to come out of the shadows and uh, the crow gets to go to his final rest with shelly where he probably belongs <sighs> which will take us into our final round of this bracket oh god is realize it's gonna be road to perdition versus teenage mutant Ninja turtles yep Oh, God. It's almost as weird as Annie versus Cowboys and Aliens. 
Yeah. I think it might honestly be slightly weirder. Road to Perdition doesn't have any Doofy in it. It might be the least Doofy thing. Yeah, it, I would say that it's probably the least Doofy film on our bracket. So that will be a final match that will be incredibly interesting. You can catch that next week. Then after that, you can start catching our What Ifs, starting with Hellboy. We'll be doing a Right Hand of Doom sized special going over five different Hellboy films, including the one releasing on April 12th of this year. So we're going to go through Hellboy, Hellboy Blood and Iron, Hellboy Sword of Storms, and Hellboy the Golden Army. And then just Hellboy... 2019. Yeah. Hellboy, David Harbour, and other people. We'll see how long the episode is, but I would expect we might hit an hour. And while we often record past an hour, we try to cut it down to 30 to 40 minutes. We'll see how big this one goes. Yeah. After that, you can expect episodes more close to our regular size. We'll be doing Adam's Family since it was snubbed from the bracket due to our incompetence. And some other examples of the weirdness of 90s comic book movies. If you want to make sure to catch all of that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify to be alerted when our episodes goes live. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.